Welcome, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for agreeing to to talk to me about Learn Through Play. Sure. I have to say that I'm quite excited uh, to be able to, to talk to you. Um, you've done a lot of research in the subject of Learn Through Play, written a lot of papers, um, a lot of books. So it's it's really uh, exciting to to be able to talk to you. I wanted to ask you what were your favorite games when you were a kid growing up um, oh. and if you think children will benefit from playing them if they, they're still playing them or if you think something changed in that? <laughs> uh, my favorite games when I was a child, well, my, my earliest memories of playing games uh, was chasing girls. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this was when I was um, probably about five years old, and if, at playtime at school, um, our favourite game uh, was for the boys to chase the girls, who would scream a lot and then disappear into the girls' toilets, where we weren't allowed to go, obviously, so <laughs> that was their refuge. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> I remember playing a game called British Bulldog, I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, not really. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Uh, it's a highly competitive game. I, I think I've got quite a competitive personality for me. I like those too. Um, where you start off with one person who is the bulldog, and everybody else is lined up at one end of the playground. This is another school game on a playground. And you, what you have to do is run from one end of the playground to the other without getting tagged by the bulldog. All right, all if, right. If he tags you, um, then you become another bulldog. So gradually, the number, yes. of, the number of people trying to get from one end to the other, I can't remember what they were called, gets fewer and fewer, and the number of bulldogs gets bigger and bigger. However, the bulldogs um, have to hold hands, so they're, oh, right. they're so there's a level of complication for them too, because otherwise it would be too easy for them. Yes, if they could spread out and uh, get everybody. Yeah, uh, we, we had something, I remember playing something similar um, back <laughs> in Italy, but I absolutely don't remember the name of it, but it's, it's very interesting that like these types of games when you grow up seem to be like, the same everywhere you are, everywhere you go, yeah. uh, like hide and seek. I remember when I was a child, I was playing a lot outdoors with all the, the kids that were part of the neighborhood, and we would spend countless hours, countless hours, like behind, like behind cars. It would get even a little bit dangerous sometimes, but it was it was such a thrill. The other games I remember playing um, were sort of. I suppose variations on chess cha chasing games. Um, so, for example, um, I was lucky until the age of 10, I lived on a little estate at the end of a large city, but we had open farm, farm fields. Now that's great. And we used to play in the fields, and some of the fields were not farmed, they were just grass, and they were quite high grass, so you could hide in them. So we would play thing. We would play games which were variously called um, uh, cowboys and Indians, or um, I don't know, Earth Earth people and spacemen, you know, or aliens. <laughs> and it was basically, you know, uh, the game was that you had to creep up behind somebody and tag them, and then they were dead. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. It's it's just a, a great way to, to play with the environment, I think. How do you think kids play today? Do they do they still interact with the environment as much? What is your take? I think I think the problem is things have got much more kind of um, how's it were, organized. 
you know so these days children are expected to play in us in a playground that's been specially designed and i think that tends to limit the play you know you're on the swings or you're on the roundabout or you're on the slide and really there's only one thing you can do with it whereas when you're when as my experience as a child just playing in the fields and making up our own games was it was much more free and varied and creative um you know and and um it was accepted that children i mean of course there wasn't the traffic i, I was born in 1948 so my my early childhood was during the 1950s there wasn't nearly the amount of traffic so you could play out in the street yeah you know perfectly safely you know because there'd only be one car coming along every half an hour and when it did it be going at 20 miles an hour you know making a lot of noise so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Avoided. there's there's two th two things that what you just said makes me think about the controlling um kind of the freedom that kids had before yeah. also in terms of space but also in terms of control in the games or in the settings i was reading one of one of the papers of paddle and one of the things that left me like really think was this kind of conditioned uh play so that that's good that uh, a game has a set of rules but then the kid needs to be free to make mistakes uh create things do things in a different way just make it their own and i think now parents maybe tend to be a bit too much controlling. I don't know. This is my take from being someone born in the 1990s and seeing, for example, other kids uh, that, that are now maybe like in 10 years old, 12, and I see the way that they play and the way that their parents control the way that they, yeah. they play. And do you see this? Do you see this in the research done at the, at the institute? Yeah, this is this is very well evidenced. It's not something we particularly did in pedal, or I've done subsequently. I'm now I'm retired, but um, uh, there's there's a massive evidence on this. Children are very much more heavily um, supervised, and they're very much more heavily um, oh, what's the word organised, I suppose. You know, so for example, a lot of children. Um, in normal times when they're going to school on a daily basis they would you know they would stay at school and do clubs you know so they'd play these you know they, or they'd go somewhere else you know like they'd have music lessons or or ballet dance lessons or sports clubs or whatever it's much more organized now than it than it was in my my own personal childhood there was very little of that um and it it was almost all just organised, you know, amongst amongst the children who lived in your street or on your estate or whatever, you know. So yeah, it was much more child initiated and child organised than it is these days. And there's, there's there's quite a you know this is I mean there's evidence as well about, for example, um. And for, for very understandable reasons, I was allowed, for example, from a very young age, I went to school on my own, I walked on my own, or I later, you know, when I was sort of by, from about the age of 10 or 11, I cycled to school and back on my own. Yes. Um, and that was, you know, that was the dominant, you know, I, I mean, I would go to school that was, say, two miles away, and I would walk, you know, as, as a six or seven-year-old. I mean, these days, children, um, you know, and you meet friends on the way. And I mean, I used one of my favorite games, actually, I've, you've reminded me of, is I pretended to be a world famous marathon runner. There was a man called Emil Zatopek, <laughs> who was, a, I think, from Eastern Europe somewhere. And he used to win all the 10,000 meters and the marathon races at the time. And I used to run everywhere as a, as a young child. And in my head, I mean, it, you know, from the outside, you could just see this small boy running. Yeah. On the inside, in my own head, I was in a marathon race and I was Emil Zaspek and I was winning the race. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot, you know, things went on then, you know, when not really obvious, 
you know, if you're just watching what's happening. But um, the amount of freedom, you know, I mean, these days children hardly hardly walk anywhere. They're taken in a car, you know, and the, you know the number of cars, the number of children who are taken to school in a car and picked up and and so on, you know. Um, so even that bit of freedom and individual responsibility is taken away from children very often for, for, for understandable reasons about, you know, the increased traffic and an increased perception of various kind of dangers, which, yes. um, you know, which are largely erroneous, actually, if dangers haven't increased, but the, the, the media. Yes, was, that was actually something I was thinking. Because the perception is not really yeah. an actual thing. And I mean, it might be in some places. Um, and this actually makes me think, so what do, you, what do you know are the negative consequences of this, kind of having something too structured, uh, not giving children enough freedom? What, what does that cause then in the future for that child? Um, well, the one thing that... The two things, the two areas that people have done research on this, so one related to children's mental health, which of course is currently a very, um, you know, big issue uh, that's been brought yeah. by the restrictions, you know, because of the COVID um, yeah. crisis. Um, and we certainly have um, good evidence that outdoor adventurous play is um, is where children build their resilience uh, and their self-confidence often um, and a lot of their social skills and these kinds of things but mostly um, you know it's it's mostly good for for children's mental health and self-esteem um, and that's been lost it's been exacerbated by the COVID crisis, but it had been lost very largely anyway. And so there's lots of movements, of course, nationally and internationally, forest schools, adventure parks, you know, specific things being provided for young children now to try and counter, counter this loss. But I think for the vast majority of children, it's still a loss. And the other area, which has been more an area of my own research, is in terms of children developing what we call self-regulation. And self-regulation uh, is sometimes thought um, the kind of popular me media and in, the, and in the policy arena, politicians and so on, to be simply concerned with children behaving themselves, you know, regulating their behavior. But actually it's much more fundamental and much more important than that because it's about being aware of and being in control of your own mental um, activity. So it relates to everything you do, you know, um, you know, having a conversation like we're having now, reading, writing, mathematics, social interaction, your emotional life, emotion, regulating your emotions and so on. So it's absolutely vast um, and is has a very profound long-term impact on both on children's academic progress, you know, that would be measured in the exam results and this kind of thing, but also in their emotional well-being and their mental health, um, which would, you know, cash out in terms of their abilities, in terms of their social relationships, their ability to work in groups, their emotional stability, their ability to form friendships and maintain friendships and intimate relationships and all those kinds of, you know, really important, what are sometimes referred to as soft skills, um, or 21st century skills, some people yeah. call them, because, you know, we all work in collaboration with others, you know, very much these days. And all of those things are supported by by uh, children having time when they are controlling the agenda, you know, when they're making the decisions about what they're doing. And that could be in a playful context, but it could also be things like um, going to the seaside with a family. I mean, obviously a lot of play is generated, but just having the freedom to, you know, 
it's an environment in which parents are allowed, you know, feel happy to allow their children. Yeah, to decide what do we do today. Instead yeah. of actually scheduling everything and say, today we're going to do this, today we're going to do that. And then when the kids grows up, then they're still looking for that someone to tell them what to do because they haven't yeah, had the chance to develop that themselves. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, I mean, and, and it can even be uh, true, not just of going to the beach or going to the zoo or something like that, but going to a museum. So it can be an educational outing, but still, if you watch parents uh, with their children in a museum, you can see that the child is having much more of a say in, you know, where they go, what they look at, what they talk about, you know, the, the agenda of the day is much more, you know, democratically negotiated rather than, you know, um, children's normal day. And I think, uh, I think this is true in general life, but I think it's true in schooling as well, certainly in the UK. There's much less child um, initiation, there's much less play in in schools. When I mean, even as recently as the 1970s, I say recently, I mean, that's 50 years ago now, isn't it? But, <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, within my own lifetime, when I was, a, I was a primary school teacher in the 1970s and early 80s, and um, we play, play-based learning was a characteristic of a primary school in the UK right through to year five, year six, right till, you know, through till the end when children were nine, ten and eleven. These days, a playful approach to learning in many schools ends at the point when children leave the reception class and go into year one, you know. So, um, uh, you know, when children <coughs> are five, so, you know, like five years earlier than it used to and and children are much more scheduled you know they have the literacy hour the numeracy hour you know the yeah. time is much more rigid it was uh, it was actually the same uh in italy where i did my own kind of primary education right. uh, and there was Really, you you were just sitting there in a class of twenty or thirty kids, and you had one teacher that would talk to you for one hour, two hours, um, and then yeah, you would just absorb um, things. But yeah, there's nothing to keep you enter entertained in a way, like uh, uh, or to make you engage with what is being taught and what is being said, and that continues. Uh, yeah. like high school and even uh, a university um, in Italy you still have that kind of okay you're, you're the student you're listening in in the UK it's a little bit better at university because at least you have the tutoring classes or you know where you have actually an exchange um, where students really learn about the lesson or whatever at home and then they come back and they talk to the tutor and they really like explore the subject and that I remember when when I was studying in the UK that I really I really liked because it was a way of really confronting your opinion or how you interpret to other people, and it was really a discussion uh, to be had. So that that was very nice. But in terms of really playful activities, not even the, the physical education was really like I don't know. It it was I don't think, for example, it's done well. Or I, we can say there's much to be improved. Let's yes. say system that is Italian, uh, what I yeah, yeah. come from. Yeah, no, I think it's very similar all over the world. Sadly, um, that I mean, I've I've been fortunate to be able to visit um, preschools, kindergartens, and primary schools in quite a number of countries around the world, in the Far East, in Africa, in that's insane. That's beautiful. Um, in Canada and so on, um, in other countries in Europe, and um, it's very, very consistent. Rather traditional uh, delivery model of education throughout the world. You know, the teacher speaks or shows or demonstrates, and um, you, you, um, 
you know, you watch, you listen. There's an old Chinese proverb, isn't there? I can't remember the detail now, but it finishes up with something about you watch and you remember, you listen and whatever, and it finishes up with you do and you understand, you know. That's, that's, that's it, that, but it's true with everything. Yeah. Uh, until you actually do something, you really realize all the things. I, I can apply this, for example, to marketing, what I, what I studied for my master's. And I remember, again, absorbing concepts and thinking and whatever, and like really abstract things, even though, you, of course, you, you know, there were practical examples and everything. And then when I actually went learning and doing things within a company, then I really, oh, okay, that thing that I read there, that paper, that's what he meant. Yes. And then you really, now you I, really, yeah, 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 it's really like that. Absolutely. Um, I read an article uh, when I actually um, found your, your name in it. It was an article from The Guardian and was talking about a Finnish example of education. Uh, somehow the, the fact that they incorporated more playful elements yeah. um, what do you think what do you think of that model do you think they are ahead and, and why um, well a friend a colleague of mine did a study of um, the Finnish education system and when when he was asked um, to say why it was like that, his response was was because they got, they got Calvinism which is one of the, you know, in the Reformation, where there was Luther, but there was also Calvin, and there were various other people. So there were various, you know, new Protestant religions. And um, I think Calvinism embodies the idea of leading the good life, or something like that, and getting a good education is part of leading a good life. I, I'm, not, I'm not a theologian, so I don't know the details. But so it's a fundamental cultural difference. If I remember correctly from back uh, in the day, it's also because it gives the person more freedom to decide what's good for them, isn't it? Yes. Yes, rather than, you know... Um, Imposing something. Yes, in some religious, in some religious uh, persuasions, you are told what to do much more, yes. Anyway, um, but in terms of the educational system, I think the, the really key difference that makes, makes most of the difference in Finland, and this is true in one or two other countries as well, Estonia is another example, um, where the children start what I might describe as formal education um, later than they do in mm -hmm. UK and in and in quite a lot of other countries. So in the UK, we, as I was saying to you, we have children that are in preschool or nursery until mm -hmm. four. Then at four, they enter what's called the reception class, which is the first class in a primary school, and then they go into year one when they're a five-year-old and go to become six in that year. Yeah. And. Uh, it used to be the case, as I said, you know, even as recently as the 70s and 80s, the play-based approach to learning would continue right through the primary school. Now it stops in reception class. And, it, and even the reception classes, when children are still four, there's a lot less play than there used to be. Uh, and, and certainly by the time they enter year one, then there's no, you know, there's almost no provision at all for any kind of a playful activity, apart from when they're in the playground. Um, in Finland and Estonia and um, one or two other countries, Singapore is another example, uh, the, the, the transition into formal uh, education where you're being deliberately taught something by a, by a teacher in that very delivery kind of way isn't until seven. So that it means that the children, of course, they all, they all have a very well-funded um, uh, uh, and provisioned uh, preschool section sector as well. So um, children in Finland can go to a 
preschool or a day nursery or something like that from six months and they can stay in in the in that kind of preschool setting play-based until they go to school uh, in the year when they start out as six-year-olds and become seven-year-olds so that's actually two years later than we do in the UK um, and that and they don't and they of course there's all sorts of you know people worry say things like oh but you know you know they need to start learning to read and write and so on you know but all the evidence is that, I mean of course at a in the preschools there is lots of what we call pre-literacy and pre-numeracy activities children have you know read stories and they do all sorts of games and so on and I mean you know life is mathematical so you're forever in, you know talking about how big something is or how wide it is or whatever so there's all that kind of informal you know um, linguistic learning oral language pre-literacy there's all that informal mathematical learning there's all sorts of informal social learning physical learning you know learning about uh, scientific aspects of the world all that's going on but in a play-based manner um, and all the evidence is that in in that context what happens is when you start introducing children to formal learning at the age of six or seven they pick it up really easily and mm -hmm. not do they pick it up really easily but they nearly all pick it up really easily okay problem with starting too early which is what we do in the uk and in a lot of countries yeah. is that you're asking children to do things that they're not developmentally uh, ready to do yeah. so they struggle and of course the the last thing you want if you're wanting a child to develop as a competent and enthusiastic reader or writer or mathematician or scientist is for their first experience of it to be one in which they find it difficult where they fail where they're conscious that other children are doing it better than they are you know and all this sort of thing and so there's some nice evidence actually a lot of it from New Zealand where where they start later the children who start later uh, find it easier and more confident about it and by the age of 11 by the time they're finishing primary school they're more advanced in their um, in their in their reading, their writing, and their mathematics, than the children are who started earlier, yeah. uh, and didn't have that extra two years of play-based um, learning. So I mean, it's the, the evidence is so strong um, uh, that um, you know, and it's incredibly compelling. It's really tragic, I think, that. You know, because most educational systems in the world are not controlled by educationalists or developmental psychologists, <laughs> sadly, mm -hmm. they're controlled by politicians. Yeah. Um, politicians, you know, as I was once told at a, at a, a meeting uh, with some politicians a long time ago, yes, but as a politician I have to consider other sorts of evidence. Well, which you may what, 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 what will get me elected you know so they're, they're you know they're the servants of public opinion they don't they don't you know contrary to I mean even in the latest COVID uh, crisis in the UK our politicians have been saying we're following the science and actually they're not at all they're continually not following the science because what they're really bothered about is not what the scientists think, but what the general public think. We get there in the end, of course, eventually, this, you know, <laughs> what they do usually <laughs> works, so then they have to do something else. They finish up eventually having to do the right thing because that's what, that's what will actually make a difference. But, but it can be very, very delayed, you know, which is a shame, which is... It is a real shame. And the, the, the next thing that is coming in my head is, okay, if this is situation in schools, um, is there a way 
that maybe parents can make up for the flaws, let's say, in the education system, in the educational system in the house and maybe implement more learn through play in the household. Yeah, absolutely. There's um I mean I mean the other the the other thing which is great news for for a lot of children but really unfortunately bad news for others is that actually the home and what happens in the home and the quality of your relationship with your parents and how playful your parents are all have much more impact on you than what happens in school um, particularly what happens in the first few years of life yeah. really sets up um, how well you're going to do through the rest of it and um, what most education systems do which is tragic is they take children who arrive in the education system having had um, you know a really excellent experience in their home with their parents which is playful educational culturally rich and all the rest of it um, they do really well in the education system and the children who come from homes where that you know none of those things are true do really poorly and most education systems take children obviously who are at a variety of levels yeah. um, and and what they do what the education system achieves is to simply exacerbate those those differences you know so if you're doing doing it on a graph you'd have you know the most um, developmentally uh, advanced child here and the least here and by the end of the education system they're much further apart there are very few there are very few educational systems that don't just make you know the divide worse there are some examples of where they don't and these tend to be again the 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 countries where children start school later and get more of the sort of rich uh, richness um, of play based because of, because of course if you've got if you've got four three four five years of play based experience in some sort of in you know institutional setting in a preschool or a kindergarten that can have a big effect and can to some extent um, remediate um, you know, having had, um, you know, not not the most advantaged home background, uh, but if it's only for one year or two years, um, then of course it, it it won't. It's not enough. So I, I really is, I'm thinking about a lot of examples, especially like from my own childhood, and I remember, um, of course, having a we. In, in Italy, you have scuola materna, which is the preschool. Um, and then when you're five or six, you go to elementary school. And I remember playing a lot. I remember that like, between uh, three and four and five, I think it's three years, really playing um, with other children. Um, and of course, we were supervised and some activities were like um, structured, but there was a lot of freedom. Um, and I remember when when I got into elementary school, of course, you, you start like you're sitting somewhere. So you have to say, stay sitting there for uh, five hours and you have a little break to have a snack or something. And then uh, at lunchtime, it was over. And so I would walk back home. Um, and I remember there was, of course, like a lot of difference between the two, but the there was even more difference from elementary school to middle school because by the time I was 11 then I went into middle school and even there you you, you had even to call the um, the teacher so before you call it teacher you call it maestra or maestro and then you call them professor so there's also like this kind of day are day you are you so this 
this device, yes. And a continuous, um, of course, university. And I remember I was surprised um, when talking to professors in the United Kingdom. There wasn't that uh, professor, whatever, because whenever you wrote emails to your professors, you know, dear professor, da, 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 and you had to like be really formal. Otherwise, they would reply to your email saying, oh, but you should call me this, you should call me that. It was like really this divide. And I remember right. it's, it's just, I don't know, wrong, because at 11, 12, 13, you're still like a child. You still need play. You still need... Yeah. I don't say a maternal figure or a paternal figure, but more maybe of a friend, not like someone that is like, I don't know, tough and is, you know, you, you have nothing to say. They're just telling you those things and you just take them as they are. Also, no critical thinking, I think, can, I don't know, can be born in, in, a, in an environment like that where you, you are not allowed to question what a teacher says. You just have to take it because they said it. So it's, yeah. must be right. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the great things about playful activity is it's very democratizing. You know, yeah. Um, um, I can't remember who it was now, but I think it might have been, um, oh, what's his name? American researcher who I attended a talk he was giving once, and one of the things he said was, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's so true, is that play only works if everybody's enjoying it. You know, you're all, when you're playing, you're a volunteer, you're, you're, you know, and if, if it's not working, if the play is not working for you, you stop doing it, you know. And, yeah. uh, and so what you see even in, in, in young children is, um, if they're whatever game they're playing, there's a there's a a very clear collaborative effort to get everybody to be enjoying the play, which wouldn't be true, you know, in any other context really, probably. Yeah. Um, and um, it's a very collaborative activity. I mean, of course, you can play on your own as well, but when you're playing with other children, it's a very collaborative. Um, activity. I mean, of course, again, it can go wrong. You can get bullying and these kinds of things. But overwhelmingly, predominantly, it's a, it's a collaborative activity, and you choose to play with. But you choose who you're going to play with. You choose what you're going to play, um, and you only do it if it's if you're getting some psychological benefit. Yes. From it, you know that you're enjoying it, and you know making you feel good and not all those kinds of positive things but as are the foundation for good mental health so it brings me to the actual pillars of what is learned through play which is it needs to be joyful and it needs to like find has to have a meaning um yeah. it involves like active and engaged thinking um and then of course the social interactions that you talked about um and so, of course, any this degree of like really like making decisions and really being being there and deciding, okay, I don't like it anymore. I'm going to get out, or or we collaborate together. And yeah, I think I think the other the other one that you that I recognise those five um, characteristics, which um, uh, you know been um, you know well well uh, accepted and written about in a lot of different publications. Um, uh, the one you've not mentioned is iterative, and that's really key because um, it's about it's about the notion of learning through mistakes. Yes. And, and in most of education, if you make a mistake, you've got it wrong, and you get a cross instead of a tick. And if you get lots of crosses, you're failing. You know, and that's it. It's very, you know, it's very kind of competitive thing. Whereas in when you're playing on your own, you know, trying to build something or make something or draw a picture or whatever, or when you're engaged in collaborative, genuinely collaborative play, you can do the wrong thing, uh, 
you can get it wrong, you can make a mistake, but there's no sanction. That's not a problem. That's part of the process. Yeah. And, and you have another go and you try something different. And when you're thinking about um, what's fundamental in terms of our learning processes as human beings, one of the ways we get better at doing things is by developing new mental strategies. And there's a huge amount of evidence in developmental psychology of children being shown to improve their performance in any particular task, whether it's mathematics or, um, you know, building a model or solving a problem or whatever it is, all sorts of different experiments have been done. And what you see is children, very interesting processes whereby they become increasingly aware of when they've made a mistake. And to begin with, they simply repeat the mistake. But after a while, they try something else. And, and if that doesn't work, then they try something else. I've got a lovely, there's a lovely transcript from a study by actually a Russian psychologist called Istamina in 1975. It's published, you know, a long time ago, of a child being involved in a, in a playful memory game. And she, the first, uh, the game consists of her being given a list of things to buy from a pretend shop. And she has to walk across quite a large hall to get to the pretend shop. So she's got to remember the items. And what you can see is the young children's children, sort of three or four year olds when they're doing that. By the time they get to the shop, they've not just forgotten the items, they've forgotten why they've gone to the shop and they start playing shops. <laughs> but by the age of five, as young as five for some children, you can see them getting so far across the across the hall, um, realizing that they've forgotten some of the things they're supposed to be getting. So this is a metacognitive act. This is an act of of uh, becoming aware of your own mental state that I've forgotten this, and going back and asking for the list again, and trying a different way of remembering it. So, for example, trying some strategy like saying to themselves what, rather than just listening and then going away, but as the person says, we need eggs, they say, oh, yeah, eggs, and, you know, and, and we need sausages, oh, yeah, sausages, you know, and so on. So they actually say it themselves to themselves, and then they, and they, and then they get all the way over and realise, and then by then they've remembered nearly everything. But they might still realise, oh, there's one thing I've forgotten, but they, you can see how they get better at memorizing because they try out different ways of doing it as they get older. And they are free to do so and find it themselves. So in a playful context and they become increasingly, you know, develop more um, strategic ways of doing things. And I, whenever I'm uh, teaching anybody or giving a lecture or anything about um, self-regulation, I always get, uh, one thing I've often done is get the, uh, the people involved, the audience or the children or whatever, to do some mental arithmetic for me. And if you do this with adults, you know, like subtract 49 from 83, you know, and you get them to do that in their head, and then they and then you get them to talk to the person sitting next to them about what answer did you get and how did you do it? And the interesting thing is, usually they manage to get the right answer. Yeah. But also, they can tell one another how they did it. And quite often, they discover they did it in a different way. You know, so subtraction, for example, one person will have done it the way they were taught to do it. Say, well, I can't take nine from three. So yeah. Ten. They'll do all that in their head, like you would do it if you're writing down. Another person will say, well, what I did was I counted on. So I started with 49, and I went, right, that's 1 to 50. And then from 50 to 80 is 30, so that's 31. And then I need another 3, so that's 34. So my answer is 34. So they get the same answer, but they do it in a different way. Nobody's taught them, well, apart from the how to write it down one. 
umpteen other ways people do something like that. Some people, you know, um, will will say, "Oh, well, I'll take. I won't take forty-nine from eighty-three. I'll take fifty from eighty-three. That's thirty-three, and then I'll add the one on from." You know, there's all sorts of different ways you can do it. People haven't been taught that, but they've worked it out in their heads by this process of what we call metacognition, which is where you become aware of, you know, how well you're getting on with the task, where you are in the task, what you need to do next. All of those things are going on while you're doing it. Um, and you and you become aware of when it didn't work, so you try something else and it does work. So we become, as adults, we become able to just use just the right strategy for each right, for each problem. We've got, you know, very fluently without we even realize what we're doing we know how to do something and we know which strategies to do when and so on and so forth and all that is um is learned and and the learning of it is massively enhanced by learning it in a playful context when it's okay to do it wrong and then try another way and so yeah. on so um the role of play in supporting children's developing metacognitive and self-regulatory abilities is huge. And I, my concern is, we have some evidence for this, that children are, are less, finished up being less strategic and ability and, the, and able, therefore, in their learning than they were, you know, um, in a more playful t when children had more playful opportunities than, you know now than they then have become worse at, at these kinds of important things now you know, which is a you know which is again a shame and quite tragic for, for some children but having a playful family who enable all that to go on and having plenty of playful preschool experience all really helps with all of this. Uh, we've got very enormously strong evidence about about, um, about all of this value that play provides in these areas. And if um, for all the parents and listening uh, then at home, if they wanted to um, take part to research how would they how how can they get in touch uh where they can actually contribute and um and help with the research that the that the institute is doing Edel has um has a website and um on the web on the website so it's just um if if they google um uh, the pedal research center at the university of cambridge they'll find it on the on the internet and on the website, it's got information about all the different ways in which um, the res the research um, group uh, disseminate their research, and all the ways in which we try to provide a um, there's a thing called Pedal Hub. Yes. Which is, as you know, which is um, a resource. We collect research from all over the world, and we publish it on the site. We publish, um, we've got a thing called the Z to A, or is it the A to Z, one or the other way around, um, of play, where we publish articles in relation to different aspects of play, short um, articles usually written by members of PEDAL or colleagues, um, you know, who are play researchers in other institutions, and they usually provide, you know, a, a brief introduction to the area and then a reading list of articles that you can look at and all those articles are on the pedal hub for you to access you can also put the link of the website um yes. on youtube um david one last question um so i saw that pedal is funded by legal i suppose they they're very kind of active in the way that they support the the, the center what is their kind of involvement um, well, their primary involvement is that they fund the centre, um, and we have, um, as a consequence, we have ongoing discussions with them about different projects, 
-hmm. and so forth. Um, they fund us on a sort of three to five year cycle. So every, I think we started off with a three year cycle. Now we're in a middle of a five year cycle. So we've got funding for, you know, for a five year period that's all targeted agreed set of projects. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, we are in fairly regular contact with the fat with the pedal founder, uh, sorry, the the Lego Foundation, which is their research arm that funds funds the center. Um, and so they're kept in touch with what we're doing. We're kept in touch with what they're they're doing. And of course, they work um, internationally and with all sorts of projects all over the world. Um, so, you know, there's a useful, um, you know, two way flow of information. Um, we do also um, and so we'll make presentations to them. There's an annual conference they run on play that members of Pedal will attend and often present at and so on. But we are increasingly getting funding from elsewhere for specific projects. So at the moment we have um, a number of, well, they fund, they fund um, a small number of PhD studentships each year within within the mm -hmm. the, the, the subject of those PhDs is decided by the centre, not not by the foundation. Um, uh, of course, the other thing that Lego do is if we actually want to use Lego as a research tool, they they're very happy to provide us with vast quantities <laughs> um, of it. So we that's that's been very useful too. Yeah. David, thank you so much uh, for your time, uh, for really spending this hour talking with me about Learn and Play. It's been lovely talking to you. Same. <laughs> okay, cheers. Thank you. Bye for now.